the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. My goodness, who writes this stuff anyway? Good afternoon. Welcome. Good to have you with us for this Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 15th day of... February. Is this the Ides of February? I know that works for March. February, I'll have to check my calendar on that one. At any rate, happy post-Valentine's Day to you. And good to have you on board for another edition of the show. We're going to talk a bit about politics, what's going on in the world, everything from uh, DACA debates to this new uh, budget proposal out of the White House. We're going to be joined by syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek who will drop by for a visit a little bit later on here in the first part of the show tonight. Talk a bit about um, also the whole issue concerning um, infrastructure, about $1.5 billion set aside. The big question is, is that enough? And have Republicans entirely abandoned the idea of the old adage of small government and balanced budgets? Some might suggest that this budget seems so. We'll get into all that when Bob Zadek joins us a little bit later on in this first hour. I want to say a very hearty thank you to all of our listeners who stood with us over the last couple of days in addressing this emergency famine situation going on in parts of Africa. As we articulated, it really hasn't made the headline news, and yet literally hundreds of thousands of people are suffering because of it. We told you on Wednesday that our goal, or Tuesday, that our goal was to try and provide emergency food for up to 50 families, the average size of eight people, and uh, that would be our goal over the two days. And I'm pleased to tell you that of the 50 families, we provided food, three meals a day for the next five months for all of those families, for all of 48 and a half of the 50. So if uh, you thought about it, didn't get around to giving for whatever reason, you can still do so at kfax.com and click on the Cross International banner at the top of our homepage. To all of you that called and gave, again, a very um, heartfelt thank you for your partnership in helping to make a difference. And it's hard sometimes to think a world away and um, people that we've never met circumstances that are hard to believe. We went through our own drought here in California several times. We might be headed into another one the way things are looking, and uh, and yet none of us starved as a result. And yet that's not been the case for so many people in um, South Sudan and in Kenya. So again, thank you so much for your help with all of this. Gee, between the news of the famine that we talked about on yesterday's program and, of course, the tragedy that unfolded just 24 hours ago, there in Florida can easily get you down in a lot of ways and sometimes looking for good healthy diversion to sort of uh, center your mind on the fact that in spite of these kinds of tragedies that beset us sometimes seemingly all around and nonstop that God is still in control 
and that it's okay to relax and breathe deep. And if you're looking for a way to do that, I got a great recommendation for you. Coming up this weekend, Tommy T's Comedy Club in Pleasanton is going to present just the second time ever an entire afternoon of clean Christian comedy featuring the likes of Bay Area's own Dennis Gaxiola and friends. It is the Gospel Comedy Explosion, and Dennis joins us by phone. Dennis, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. This looks like it's going to be a fun and exciting afternoon coming up Sunday, February the 18th, 3.30 p.m. at Tommy T's Comedy Club in Pleasanton. And tell us who all is going to be appearing along with you. Uh, this week we're going to have Ricky Del Rosario, uh, Deborah Hooker, Andre Bailey, both Hughes, and myself. And it, it's just a fun, you know, diverse group of comedians representing the body of Christ and... Uh, I'm looking forward to our first show last month. The club was blown away that Christians came out and and could have a great time. And the staff wasn't used to hearing a comedy show that went two hours with no profanity. So they were blown away, and they've asked us to continue doing it once a month there and at their, their other club up in Sacramento. So it's just such a blessing to be able to take some light into darkness. And we certainly want to encourage people to come on out and support this, because clearly the more support, the greater encouragement for comedy clubs like Tommy T's and elders, others around the country, uh, to do yeah. more of this. And, and you know, I, I love good comedy. I'm a slightly older guy, so I also like some of the comedy that goes back to the lives of George Burns and Bob Hope. And the one thing that struck me about the difference of comedians back then versus a lot of them today, not certainly all of them, yourself is, is not in that group, but a lot of today seems to be, let's get the laugh by being as raunchy as we possibly can, and if the audience isn't laughing, throw in a few blue words and we'll get them uh, into a really good belly laugh. And yet, I wonder, from your perspective, Dennis, did, did the com- comedians of yesterday have to work harder at getting the laugh because they couldn't lean on that crutch of, of going blue, so to speak? Yes, definitely. It's Working clean is always harder, but it's so much more rewarding. And I, I try to encourage my... Uh, my non-believing friends who uh, they want to talk to me about clean comedy and I always tell them you can add salt but you can't take it away so you know working clean leads to so much uh, so much more uh, rewarding events and you feel better about yourself because you're refining your art to be able to make to have grandparents and young children sitting there laughing that that takes a lot more of a uh, a skilled comedian, as far as I'm concerned. And I think in that respect, it's it's a lot more enjoyable, too, because then everybody, all of the family gets to join in. You know, sometimes you, you hear a joke, and, and then you have to wonder if you're going to repeat it. As funny as you might have found it in the first place, you have to wonder about, oh, well, who's going to my audience going to be here? And is this going to be appropriate for the kids to hear, the grandkids to hear? It's so nice to exactly. be in an atmosphere where you don't have to worry about those things. And mom and dad and the kids and grandma and grandpa, everybody in the family can come, have a belly laugh, enjoy it, and you don't have to worry about anybody walking away embarrassed. Exactly, and we, all the comics are believers, and they, they understand that uh, you know, not only the comedy club, but everybody that comes out is watching us, so we, we've, we've raised the bar uh, high enough so that everybody understands we're, we're not only representing ourselves, but we're, rep- we're calling it gospel comedy for a reason, so um, it's it's a great event, great opportunity. Church groups can actually raise money off of the event by uh, for every ticket they purchase, they can 
send $5 back to their own church, their own youth group, whatever function they're having. So I'm trying to make it where it's a win-win-win. That's good stuff. And, of course, as you talk about um, this kind of an event, not just a great um, diversion, get away from uh, problems at home or just the problems in the headline news every day, uh, but there is a distinctive aspect of the gospel that you incorporate into what you guys share. Talk to us about that, because I've I've, I've seen some of your videos, and I know that even when you you do events at churches and things of that sort, of course, you you speak and perform at uh, youth conventions and marriage seminars and uh, church comedy nights, the whole bit. You also are very sincere in terms of great comedy, great belly laugh, but you're also very candid about some of your own life experiences. And, and your dad growing up as a preacher here, uh, as a young man rather here in the Bay Area and eventually becoming a, a preacher and, and the aspects of some of the challenges that you and your family have gone through and how you've survived through all of that is very much a part of your act too. It, I think it's so important for people uh, in the world and, and even in the church to understand that people go through struggles, but that I, I made it because of my relationship with Christ. And so I, I try to be as transparent as possible. That way someone else, and so many times I hear people go, man, I thought I was alone dealing with the marital problems, dealing with uh, uh, having pro- when, when different areas of life. So what I... I I feel comfortable in knowing that uh, a lot of times things we go through aren't even for us. They're for us to encourage others that we made it because of the Lord. As we mentioned, uh, Dennis Axiola and Friends Comedy Gospel Explosion taking place Sunday, February the 18th, 3.30 p.m. Tommy T's Comedy Club in Pleasanton. You can get details and reservations online at TommyTees.com. Again, the date will be this Sunday, February the 18th, 3.30 p.m. at Tommy T's located at 5104 Hopyard Road in Pleasanton. Look forward to a great afternoon. Bring the family down, a bunch of folks from church, and have a great time. Our thanks to Dennis Gaxiola for being with us on that segment of Lifeline. All right, 5.15 on the clock. Let's turn a corner, help to get you around that corner. We're going to check in with Michael Bennett over at the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It was just about this time yesterday on the program that we were talking about the tragic shooting down in Florida. And even 24 hours later, it might be 24 days, 24 years later, we might never fully understand what transpired in this situation. We do know certainly that every time one of these mass shootings takes place, there is a hue and cry across the country. We need better gun control. The NRA steps in. They've got their take on it. Congress, of course, says let's hurry up and ultimately does nothing. And it raises once again the ire of many people over, is this a debate concerning gun control? Is this a debate over mental health? What exactly is this at play here? Let's talk about it. We're joined now by syndicated talk show host, best-selling author, his new book, by the way, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy. Mr. Bob Zadek joins us. And Robert, as always, great to have you on the show. Greg, thanks for having me back. It's good to be on the show. You know, it's heartbreaking, Bob, when we see things unfold as we did. The tragedy yesterday, 17 young people just absolutely senselessly losing their lives at the hands of this young shooter. And as I mentioned in my opening remarks, it always sparks once again the debate over gun control and what do we need to do. This is another example where this man apparently was able to legally buy this gun about a year ago. 
and able to get on to a high school campus and do what he did. What are your thoughts? There's always the strong constitutional question on one side, gee, if we engage in greater gun control, what are we doing to the value of the Second Amendment? It's certainly very integral to uh, uh, to American culture, and yet I have to wonder, is it time that we revisit this issue? Well, when you say revisit this issue, it's not this issue, it's these issues, and there are hundreds of issues that are implicated. And in this conversation, I am always ready to hear the assault on and a discussion of the Second Amendment, what is the extent of a right to bear arms, everybody in America becomes a constitutional scholar interpreting a somewhat obscure amendment uh, to the Constitution. The debate should not be, in my opinion, should not be on what the Second Amendment says or doesn't say. That debate is for the Supreme Court. The debate for the rest of us, all Americans other than the nine members of the Supreme Court, is to ask ourselves, what does this tell us about society? And once we answer that question, does it tell us something that ought to be different? I, I, I have no patience with a discussion on constitutional law. I have unlimited patience to examine life in America, civil life in America, and to see if tragedies such as this tell us anything or not. And remember, there's an or not. About a month ago or six weeks ago, we had a terrible train crash when 50 or so people were killed. Why wasn't the conversation whether or not to ban trains? Uh, and I know there's chuckles out there, and the answer is that would be absurd. Well, not quite. Because whenever we have these conversations, whenever something bad happens from 9-11 to yesterday's tragedy in Florida, whenever an event happens, the conversation always jumps to what freedoms should we take away? Mm. And to me, the conversation is about freedom first. And when we surrender freedom, we should surrender freedom in tiny tiny drops. It is too dear, and we never get it back. Let's talk about this then. Let's sort of unwrap this. To begin with, of course, as I suggested, America has had a love affair with the gun since day one. It is arguable that the gun helped us to not only break free from the control of Great Britain, but eventually to win the West. There have been times when folks used to run around with a gun strapped to their waist all the time, not just in parts of Texas, as we've seen in recent Recent years, and there have been times when fully automatic weapons were available. Look at what happened in the 1920s related to prohibition, the gangsters, access to Tommy guns, things of this sort. So guns are not new. Access to high caliber weapons are not new. What seems to have changed here then? Is this a question of what's happening in terms of we as the people, as our morality? And maybe to a degree, the way we deal with mental health issues, has that changed, Bob? Because if you turn back the clock 100 years ago, when they could have easily gotten rifles and Tommy guns and everything else, we didn't see cases of mass shootings. So what's changed? 
break, I compliment you on zeroing in on what I believe is exactly the conversation to have. And a little secret about my life. I happen to own home movies of myself, my family, taken in Queens, New York, from roughly 1947 to 1958. I was preteen and a young teenager. Why am I telling you that? In every frame of every movie, I am holding a gun. I'm holding a cap pistol, a BB gun, a water pistol, a ping pong ball gun, all kinds of guns. I am, and so are my friends, with cowboy holsters strapped to their hips and cowboy hats on. And every frame of every movie, that was life in New York City in the 1950s. How did I grow up? I have never touched a real gun in my life, with one exception. A friend of mine, just so I had the experience, handed me a pistol. I shot it twice into a stream. It was a little bit scary, but I dealt with it. So exposure to guns, toy guns, as a teenager, did not make me into a crazed criminal. criminal. So what was different in society then? Well, culture was a big part. There was no, I think back to the movies and all the culture, the songs, what I saw in the movie theater from 12 to 5 every single Saturday. There was violence, cowboy and gangsters, but the killing and the firing of guns was so silly looking by today's standards, nobody believed it. It was unreal. It was clearly theatrical. Today, there seems to be such a glamorization, whether it's video games or the media or the songs. So I don't know whether that's a cause or an effect, but as you said, when you introduce a topic, it's a worthwhile discussion to have. Well, I think certainly along the lines of the sense of perhaps um, desensitizing people to the realities of the kind of destruction that these weapons do. As you point out, you know, a lot of us recall the Lone Ranger and Red Rider and all of that, and certainly we saw pistols being fired in the air, but at the end of the day, uh, the good guy in the white hat always got the bad guy, and he wound up in jail. And I don't recall from film and theater and whatnot of those years to where we're at today that violence was necessarily... Um, propagated as the singular answer to every single problem. Today, you see cases where um, every single uh, encounter with a bad guy in the film always ends up with somebody shooting a weapon. Uh, we go to war, and we, we highlight that at every turn. Young people come home after a busy day at school, and they settle down for several hours in front of the TV set with their video game playing Call of Duty or what have you. And so it, there seems to be a level at which Violence to the extreme has crept into so many aspects of society that it suddenly becomes normative. And I, and I have to wonder, such as in the case of what transpired with Nicholas Cruz down in, in Florida yesterday, if you don't reach a point where you are so inundated by all of this that eventually the ability to draw that fine line between fact and fiction, reality versus fantasy, suddenly becomes so blurred that... 
people act out in fashions that otherwise, heretofore, they never would have even considered or thought about doing. And suddenly now you're making plans to go into a school and shoot things up because it sounds fun or exciting or a way to get revenge. And I have to wonder if how much of this, and maybe it's a good question for a psychologist, Bob, but how much of this is actually trained behavior? That's an interesting question, which, of course, is outside of my wheelhouse. I would say the one class of people who ought to be forbidden to have an opinion on yesterday's event is politicians, because a politician sells one product. They sell laws. That's what they sell. No politician gets elected because he's going to repeal laws. They get elected because they're going to pass laws. So whenever a politician has an opinion on anything, that opinion ends up with a punchline, we need another law. And what is a law? It says somebody who today is permitted to do something, tomorrow is forbidden. We don't need more freedom taken away from us, except as a last resort. Freedom is not this cheap commodity to be given up at every turn just because a bad thing happens in society. Freedom is not respected, is not cherished by politicians because every impulse they have is in one way or another to take some away because that's what laws do. Now, we've talked a bit about the Second Amendment aspect of this. After the commercial break and an update on traffic, Bob, I want to talk about the First Amendment dynamic. You've probably seen in the news today that this young man, Nicholas Cruz, allegedly had made comments in a YouTube posting saying that he was going to, quote, be a professional school shooter, close quote. And that that remark had been reported to the FBI. The FBI looked into it, found no no substance to it, and so they sort of moved on. Some are now saying, well, with the proliferation of social media and how easy it is for these comments to be made, isn't it time that we see a greater degree in which perhaps some government body is tightly policing what's said, YouTube, Facebook, email? Can we get a glimpse into not only the the heart and the mind of individuals that are preparing to engage in this kind of uh, wanton mass killing behavior and stop it from happening? Do we ultimately then wish to consider the notion of surrendering some of our privacy and our First Amendment rights in favor of giving greater tools, quote unquote, to law enforcement that would hopefully, perhaps, maybe catch these criminals before they can act out in violence. We're going to reason through that part of the equation as our conversation with best-selling author and nationally syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek continues here on Lifeline. Bob's program, by the way, The Bob Zadek Show, can be heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. We invite you to tune in, check it out. More information, too, about Bob's new book, Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy, available online. Just check out Bob's website at Bob Zadek, that's Z-A-D-E-K, BobZadek.com. Back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. But first, let's get a look at traffic for you. 531 on the clock. We've got Michael Bennett standing by with the latest at the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael, what's going on out there? 
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation with best-selling author and syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek of The Bob Zadek Show. Heard here in the Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer. We invite you to tune in for that and check it out. You can get more information, by the way, about Bob, past shows as well, at his website by going to bobzadek.com. That's Bob, Z-A-D-E-K, bobzadek.com. Bob, I think we both recognize that this is a sensitive conversation and that whenever these tragedies take place, uh, it, it once again sort of spurs debate. Congress now talking about what kind of laws do we need to do, what things need to be done in terms of greater gun control, so on and so forth, all of that related to the Second Amendment. But there's also overtones of a potential impact on the First Amendment that I want to get your thoughts on. Uh, We know from what the FBI has indicated that a YouTube video had been posted some time ago by this young man in which he said that he's, quote, going to become a professional school shooter, The FBI investigated it, didn't find any real veracity to the threats, left it alone. Now, of course, there's been conversation about, well, gee, with so much available through social media, the Internet, uh, Facebook postings, email, et cetera, et cetera, can't government do more to get a better handle on spotting trends so that when people are engaged in dialogue, when they're posting things that seem to have violent tendencies, that law enforcement can't step in and perhaps cut them on the, off at the pass a much sooner. And, and certainly the idea of law enforcement having tools at their disposal to find out about horrific events before they can happen, like a terrorist attack, good stuff. But I have to wonder about the potential First Amendment aspects of this if suddenly now, um, not only from a First Amendment standpoint, but from a privacy standpoint, we're essentially saying to the government, it's okay if you look into every bit of our communication, so long as you're doing it with the goal of making sure that me or someone else is not up to doing something evil that might cost lives. What do you think about this aspect? First of all, I'm breaking into a cold sweat based on some of what you said. So, and my heart's beating a little faster than usual, (laughs) so I have to take a deep breath, lest I sound uh, irrational. But uh, there's a, you said a lot of stuff there. Let's parse it down if we can. First of all, the First Amendment. The First Amendment acts as a, uh, prevents the government, the federal government or local government, from limiting or interfering with freedom of speech. Now, one doesn't have an unlimited right, but almost an unlimited right to say what you want. There are very modest limitations. Basically, we can say whatever we want with certain tiny carve-outs. We are, as an aside, the only country on earth with almost unlimited free speech. We are the leader, numero uno, when it comes to free speech. And I love that about our country. Now, more specifically, you almost answered the question that you posed when you introduced the topic by explaining the FBI somehow found out about a YouTube video. God knows how they found out. Were they tipped off? Do they have uh, machinery that scans all the videos on Earth and looks for scary stuff? We don't know that. We may never know that. But they did find out. And government did exactly what it's supposed to do. It got curious, 
and without violating anybody's rights, I assume it, to use the words of the news report, it investigated and it found that video had no merit, whatever that even means. But they made a decision. Now, assuming everybody did their job correctly, it's an imperfect science and they made a mistake. Maybe somebody else would have said this requires more attention. But the story you tell, Craig, is the system working. We don't need any governmental invasions of privacy. That young man surrendered his privacy when he took a controversial, scary point of view and made it public. He surrendered it. He wanted to have no privacy. He wanted everybody to know what he felt. So this is not a privacy issue. He, his privacy wasn't invaded. He had no privacy. He publicized his position. So therefore, this whole segment of the Cruz story is an example that A, the government works the way it's supposed to work, and B, no more laws are needed unless you want to revisit in real life an old Mission Impossible uh, Tom Cruise movie when in the storyline there was uh, electronics and computers that could predict criminal behavior and they arrested you if the computer said you were going to commit a crime. Uh, until we get there, Mr. Cruz, not Tom of course, Mr. Cruz in Florida can say what he wishes, there are consequences, but you gave an example of the system working perfectly and no new legislation is called for based upon the anecdote you related. But here's what scares me, Robert, and that's this, that typically when we hear the dialogue related to, well, they found out on the Internet, that usually snowballs into, well, there could be other private communications taking place. Uh, this conversation, That wasn't private. No, you're Craig, right. No, you're, in, in terms of what he did, he posted public. He wanted the public to know. Fair game. But what I'm suggesting is that there are also people that say, as a result of things like this, we need to go deeper, not just to what is spray-painted on the wall, but also what you have written down on the notepad inside of your house, meaning... If we had, as the government, had done deeper research into private email communications, eavesdropped on telephone conversations, used the latest Alexa device to hear what was being said inside of his bedroom as he was assembling the munitions, that somehow granting a greater degree of investigatory skills or resources to organizations like the FBI could make things safer for us. And I always have to wonder, even if we, in the sake of trying to feel more secure about ourselves, surrender our freedoms, even if it's done, you know, millimeter by millimeter, aren't we running into a dangerous potential scenario there when we want to exchange our freedoms for security? I answer the question by looking to the words of one of my demigods, Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin said in a letter in colonial times to the Pennsylvania legislature, quote, those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. It's always easy. Let's stipulate, Craig, that you can become safer 
every time you become less free, every time everybody on earth or in this country is prohibited from doing something which is a possible danger to somebody else, the country becomes A, safer, and B, less free. And there are people who don't value privacy, freedom, being left alone. Some people don't value it all that much. It makes me sad, but they don't value it. Those people will say, I don't care about my freedom. I want to be safe. Students on college campuses, they want to give up their free speech rights so their feelings aren't hurt. That goes on on college campuses all across the country. They are giving up their free speech rights so they don't have their feelings hurt. These, they're called snowflakes, of course, it, as a de derisive term. I don't choose to give away freedom as a throwaway benefit worth nothing in order to gain marginal amount of safety. And, you know, the utter irony behind all of that, if you dig down a little bit deeper to some people that propose that we surrender more of our freedoms in order to gain greater security, if you sort of continue that thought and take it to its logical conclusion, people will say, well, for example, these poor children, they went to school, mom and dad were expecting them to come home at the end of the day, and yet they didn't. They all died as a result of this tragic shooter. And so if we had had um, more security because of access to greater knowledge, greater information, maybe we could have prevented this from happening. And at the end of the day, typically that scenario plays out as we wish to have a greater degree of security so we can live our lives in a normal fashion, so we can do what we want, so we can go to school without fear, so we can go shopping or take a vacation. And the irony is the very things that we think that that greater security is going to afford us ends up eroding the very thing that we're seeking to do, and that is to be able to freely come and go as we want. So there's some short-sightedness in there, isn't there, in terms of, of what we're surrendering, not realizing that the very thing that you're willing to surrender will ultimately take from you the very thing that you're trying to protect. Notice how quickly, as soon as something bad happens, how quickly government in all forms finds an urgent solution which is you are now prohibited from doing something that yesterday you were permitted to do. Government is, is wonderful at finding solutions, and the solutions always are take away people's rights. That's almost never the solution. That's the absence of a solution. I don't, I don't choose, I don't treat my freedom as, as cheap and throwaway and unimportant. And we should always be on guard, in my opinion, to any chiseling away at freedom, because freedom disappears, as Madison pointed out, in dribs and drabs, it disappears. And you wake up one day and it's all gone. But it always goes away in tiny little pieces and always because of a perceived crisis. And this is yet another example. And certainly the easy way to take those freedoms away, completely imperceptible, uh, goes right back to the old notion of the famous um, frog in the kettle, doesn't it? With syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. We'll take a brief time out, get you another update on traffic. When we come back, we'll get some closing thoughts from Bob and talk a bit about the budget proposal. That, as Lifeline continues. 
All right, 546 on the clock. Michael Bennett's got that update for you as you make your way hither and yon. How far is it from hither to yon? That's what I want to know. have to uh, get my GPS out for that. <laughs> Let's see what's going on. Hey, Michael, tell us what's up. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek. His new book, by the way, Secret Sauce, the Founder's Original Recipe for Limited American Democracy, available through Bob's website at Bob Zadek. That's Z-A-D-E-K, BobZadek.com. Bob, let's talk a bit about money. The president has, of course, uh, put before Congress a $4.4 trillion budget proposal and there seems to be very little wiggle room there. Um, it is deficit spending. In fact, um, according to what I've seen from the CBO, um, it's going to add about $7 trillion in uh, deficits over the budget window over the next several years. And we're already at, in terms of the, the, the national debt, at $20 trillion and climbing. And many of the questions that are being asked is, well, wait a minute, though. I thought Republicans were for controlled spending, small government. What's going on here? Well, first of all, you said, I thought Republicans were for small government, balanced budgets, you didn't mention that, and low spending. And I said, where in the world did you get that idea from? So let's (laughs) put that aside, because um, that's not really been the case. They may have given lip service, It was a way to get elected, but it certainly wasn't the way they governed. Our recent history, going back to including Reagan's administration, has never demonstrated, and never is a strong word, has never demonstrated that the Republicans want less spending. They just want different spending. But no politician wants less spending because they got elected to bring home the bacon. No politician, except perhaps for a few in the Senate and in the House, uh, Justin Amash, uh, Rand Paul, uh, Mike Lee, and a few others, are truly for uh, reduced spending in a smaller government. But the rest, forget the lip service, they're not telling the truth. Now, a conversation on the budget can either be a dreary, mind-numbing conversation about money and that's no fun that's no way to spend an evening or it can be a lively interesting conversation in which everybody can participate and that is what should government spend money on if you have that conversation and if that list becomes smaller then perforce the amount spent on a shorter list becomes less and the spending takes care of itself. And just one more example to show my point. I abhor large amounts of spending and a very large government. But Craig, I ask you and your listeners to think about this hypothetical. We are engaged, we are not, but imagine hypothetically, we're engaged in a law, in a war for our survival, and it's truly for our survival. It is a really serious threat. Our government has an obligation to spend every penny that must be spent to preserve our life and our country, even if it means tripling spending. 
and nobody would object. Nobody would say reduce government spending. So it's not the level of spending, it's what you're buying. Well, and if you focus on what you're buying, it's an easy conversation to have. And I think your point is a very valid one, Bob, because if we think back to World War II, nobody stopped and said, now, wait a minute. Now, we're buying way too many of these tanks. We don't need all these planes. No, instead, Americans said, we're going to do bond drives. We'll do all that we need to do to provide the resources necessary so that we can make sure our military is well-equipped so they can go out and win this war. So you're right. Then the debate has to turn to... Not just simply the factor of how much is being spent, but what it's being spent on. And I think the one frustrating thing for a lot of us is that there are these little tidbits, these bones that are thrown out. For example, um, President Trump has said, as some of his predecessors have also suggested, well, we need to cut some of the budget. We're going to eliminate money for the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. And everybody that watches NPR or listens to PBS gets all upset about that. And then you do the math and find out, well, you're talking about, all told, $445 million in a government that's proposing spending $4.4 trillion dollars, it doesn't seem to me that reducing spending by $445 million is anything. That's like suggesting, well, the electric bill was $400 this month, so we'll turn off a light bulb in the living room. That's as if somehow that's going to make a difference. I just about 100% agree with you, with one exception. If eliminating the funding for public broadcasting was simply one of 150 similar initiatives of examining what the government is doing, I'm in. But if that's the only example, you're right. It's absurd. Why waste my time talking about it? But if that represents a new approach to government, really asking ourselves, what is the core mission of government? Why do we have government? And a libertarian has an easy answer for that. But if one asks themselves, why, what are the core missions of government? The list of what government should spend money on gets mighty small. And perhaps at the end of the day, then, the real shift here that needs to take place, as Bob Zadek, I think, is suggesting, is not necessarily that we need to get out our slide rules and our calculators and have a debate over how much we're spending as outrageous and obscene as the numbers can be. And, you know, let's all face it. Four trillion, forty trillion. Has anybody ever seen a trillion dollars? Do you really understand what the difference is? I think, arguably speaking, no. But to have a dialogue about what we're spending the money on, and do we need to be spending the money on certain things? Therein lies perhaps the real key to getting the dialogue heading in the right direction, because otherwise it just continues to be this ongoing debate. And as uh, I, I think we've clearly seen demonstrated, and Bob Zadek touched on this point, um, the difference between the two sides really is no difference at all. Politicians, Republican and Democrats alike, love to spend money. The only difference is Democrats tend to tax and spend, and Republicans tend to borrow and spend. But spend and spend alike, they all seem to do quite successfully so. Bob Zadek will continue this conversation and many others of issues of interest. And we invite you to tune in and check it out every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m. The Answer, The Bob Zadek Show. And again, information about Bob, including his podcast and how to get a copy of his latest book, called Secret Sauce, the Founder's Original Recipe for a Limited American Democracy, available at bobzadek.com. That's bobzadek.com. 
Com. And our thanks to Bob so much for being with us on this edition of Lifeline. All right, Michael Bennett, just ahead of 6 o'clock, tell us what's going on out there traffic-wise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.